Show of hands. How many of you are really, really familiar with Psalm 51? A couple of you. Okay, good. Uh, for the rest of you that are not maybe all that familiar with it, I want to kind of set you up so that you realize what has gone on and what has caused King David to write the words that he wrote that we now know as Psalm 51. Uh, King David was a mess. About a year prior, he had committed a series of sins, adultery, murder, and then lie after lie to cover it up. And for that whole period of time, nobody really called him out on it. But then one of David's advisors, a prophet named Nathan, came to him and and, uh, was given direction by God to help David to confront the sins that he was carrying around in his heart. And so if you could imagine a, a, a meeting, we don't know if it was a chance meeting or a deliberate meeting, but, but Nathan coming along and saying to David, David, I, I have a story for you. There was a city, and in this city were two men. One man was very rich. He had many herds, many flocks. And there was another man in this city who was very, very poor. And he scrounged together enough money to buy a little ewe lamb. He took the lamb home. He cared for it. He nourished it. And it became almost like one of the family. It would sit at his table and dine with him. It would eat of his bread and it would drink from the things that were in his cup. It had become like a daughter to him. And he loved to hold that little lamb in his arms. Well, one day a traveler came to this city, a very important man. And as was the custom, the rich man determined that there needed to be a feast for the traveler. But he did not want to take of his own herd or his own flocks. So he took the lamb from the poor man. He had it slaughtered and he had it prepared as a feast for the traveler. Now let me ask you, what would your reaction to that be? How would you feel about that? Would that stir up some passion inside of you to hear a story like that? Well, it stirred up passion in David. And if we go to 2 Samuel, we read just how David reacted to this. The scripture says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deed deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan left him with Four simple words. He turned to David and said, That man is you. Good morning, church. 
My name is Dustin Souter. I'm executive pastor here at Mannheim BIC. It's good to be with you this morning. In the Lord's Prayer, there's this one line that, that I think I probably cry out to God the most about. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would, would heaven touch earth in this situation, in this place? Because it doesn't seem like anything but hell is happening. I believe if you and I met over a meal, we could probably quickly come up with a whole list of things wrong with this world. We could start internationally and then keep building it down closer and closer to maybe a town, neighborhood, our job, our homes. And there'd be a bunch of things we'd love to fix. Daily we wish for change, yet how can we change the world if we can hardly change ourselves? It's so easy to examine everything else going on and everything else wrong, and it's really difficult to examine ourselves. I found this to be true in playing soccer in high school and college. Once in a while, they would film us, uh, which is just an invitation for all the guys that make fun of you, um, because it's so easy to see what everybody else does wrong on the field. And then when you have the ball, and you're like, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, oh, that was a mistake. Or the guy's coming at you and you stab so poorly and totally miss the ball and the guy blows past you and you just want to hang your head in shame. If I hold a mirror up to to myself and my life, I can start to make a list of things I'd love to see improved. Change. Less consumerism. uh, A financial budget I stick with. More self-control. No gossip. Less depression. Less jealousy. More contentment more following Jesus, more time in the Word, and that's just starting to get started. It's like a husband that goes to a counselor and says he wants a better marriage, and the counselor says, great, let's start with you. And the husband says, no, I said I want a better marriage. And the counselor says, great, we got to start with you. Throughout the Bible, God voices his obsession with change. Sometimes for the world, for society, for tribes, for neighbors, for leaders, and it's often with a real person, a father, a wife, a husband, a son, a daughter. Jesus almost calls this this wanting change out in in this really harsh statement. This statement almost fits into no sermon except for today's. And it's, it's this, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he, and he says this with fire in his belly. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's brutal. He goes on to say, you're a lot like a whitewashed tomb. You might look clean on the outside, but you stink inside. There's death inside of you because you are not willing to do the hard work and take a look at your heart, your will, your center. Psalm 51. It's classified as a a personal lament, and it's in a small group of eight psalms. These are actually used every year during Ash Wednesday and Lent to, to really capture the sorrow around the time of Easter. I call Psalm 51 the beautifully ugly poem. Because there's a beautifulness of God in there and of confession, but it's so ugly and stinky to get through it. 
You almost have to walk through a stinky swamp of sin to finally get to solid ground. It's like a heart-to-heart conversation with God when you finally lay down your cards and say, this is where I'm at, and God says, I know. And it's not just, not just words that, that King David said, hey, I think this will help the next generation out. This is his personal diary. This is his life. The message is his life. He is the message. So this morning, we sit with the bad in, to un, in order to understand the good. And so if it feels a little uncomfortable, can you hang with me? Because we really have to understand and understand the bad and see the bad to really start to see the good. For generations, Psalm 51 has been this timeless quality that gives us an anchor. It gives the church an anchor for God's faithfulness for those, us, who have been unfaithful. I want to start with this line, as I kind of just wrestled with this line over and over again. Because David talks about sin again and again. And it's this, you and I exist in a culture disinterested in the vocabulary of sin. Not interested in the discussion around sin. Is is it an outdated word? Does it make us uncomfortable? Do we not understand it? I think the church has something to bring to this discussion. And it really does impact so many parts of our lives. To help, to help better understand just the word sin, this is very much an Old Testament definition that I want to give you. It's rebellion against God. It's defiance of his holy lordship and of his rule, of his rules that he had given his people. It's missing the mark. It's the arrow that shoots way off course. It's taking the wrong road. I think we can all relate to the definition of sin, the concept of sin in everyone's life. Is it real? Yeah, for sure. And as we talk with the world about sin, I don't mean hold up signs telling everyone else what they're doing wrong because it is so easy to call out others' sin. But if we really want to change the world, do we consistently challenge the sin in our own life? Do we consistently look for the ugliness that we're sitting on? Are we willing to say, I'm that guy that Nathan spoke to? Now, as I thought about Nathan and and, uh, David's discussion, I kept coming back to just this image of a dragon. David being the dragon and Nathan being like this small guy, like, hey, I got a story to tell you. So, so I'm, I'm leaning on Lord of the Rings on this one for a visual. And maybe this is just you in the morning. Um, but but maybe, maybe this is the guy at work that everyone tiptoes around, or girl. And maybe it's the relative that shows up at the family reunion that nobody knows what to do with. And you're just sort of afraid to even talk to them about anything. And maybe it's the spouse that takes every little thing to an argument or to a power game. Today, we we take the time to seek out today how I'm that guy. How am I that dragon? How does does sin burn inside of me and, and I know it and don't know what to do or I'm just oblivious and don't even know it? How am I that dragon at work, at home, as I parent? Psalm 51 is so much about openness and surrender and at the same time, it shows us that none of us are above the smell of, skin, of sin. None of us. 
None of us have an answer for sin. Sin grows, and when it grows, it gets out of control. We can sugarcoat it with smiles and, yeah, I'm doing fines, but there are days when anger, bitterness, and jealousy can just burn underneath. And people are like, I'm not talking to them. King David, he's a political and spiritual leader of Israel. And he has stood up against this dragon so many times. He has stood up against sin. He hates foolishness and he hates godliness. I can tell you the story uh, when David was so outraged at a man's disrespect for God that he confronted the man on the battlefield with five small smooth stones and took him out. Another time, a lesser known story, but so good. Another, he was so outraged at a man's disrespect for God and society and how society works that a very wealthy man refused to pay a small little tribute to David's men for the protection that David and his men provided the man's livestock. He said, I don't need them, but he did. And so David said, okay, I'm going to get 400 of my best guys and come visit you. And he was going to kill the man. Outraged at the foolishness and disrespect that people have. People do not fear God. And now David is that guy. The very thing that he hated, he became. Can you imagine? He's, he's in the palace and everything is beautiful and there's marble, everything's washed clean, there's tons of food on the buffet table and he is the ugliest thing in the room because that's what sin does to us. Had he just unplugged from God, ignored the Lord's word, Had he turned his back on his own family? Did he really think he could have the last word on sin? Did he think that he would escape the lasting consequences that go with sin? In many ways, Psalms 51, it gives us a miracle. It gives us this sliver of hope to hang on to. The miracle is that Nathan was brave enough to speak up. And the miracle that David was actually listening And the miracle that God could create a clean heart when so much wrong was happening. God's gift of repentance is a gift. We're going to walk through Psalms 51 together this morning. It's in your bulletin. I've asked my friend Sean to come on up. And he's just going to say a few words. He's going to pray with us and read scripture for us this morning. Uh, I think we've set it up between Tom and I. Uh, very well, so I'm going to let you take over, Sean. Well, this is a pretty heavy verse. When I read it at first, I didn't really think much of it, but then I read into it a little more, and it really hit home for me. Uh, man, this guy screwed up bad. Like He was like God's chosen guy, and he messed up real bad. He not only messed around with somebody's wife, and then he tried to set the guy up to think it was his child, and then that didn't work, so he killed him and took his wife. And I just, I think it was great when Nathan came in because it was almost like a accountability partner. But he came in and when he told David what he did and he made him really realize it, it was like a cement truck dropped on his head. And the heaviness that David felt through these verses, I could feel it myself. Like I felt embarrassed for him and bad for him because it was such a horrible thing that he did. But the thing that jumped out at me was and I do this a lot too, I want to be forgiven, I ask God to forgive me, but I don't come there completely ready to be forgiven, like, 
I have an excuse why it happened or whatever. But David came there, no excuses, no nothing, no baggage, and said, look, God, I want to be forgiven wholeheartedly. It's my fault. I did it. There's no one else to blame, no matter what the consequence be. And as you read later on, there was a lot of stuff that happened in his family later on. But that's really what I got out of it, and we have to remember that. That if we want to be forgiven, we need to come with completely ready to be forgiven, with a completely re- repent, and with our heart ready to be forgiven, and that we really want to. Because if not, we're not really doing it for the right reason. So, but I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stains of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stains of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, score to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to the rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not rejoice or you will not reject a broken and repent heart, O God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this Sunday free to worship here without any issues and problems from anyone. And we ask you, Lord, to remember that when we come to you, to come to you completely free and ready, no baggage, no anything, to be forgiven not blaming anyone else, but taking full responsibility for our actions that we committed against others and yourself. And remember that that's what you would like from us, Lord, not anything else. So please let us remember that when we come to you for forgiveness, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sean. I want to give, a, give you the line that Jesus speaks first, really, in his ministry. I mean, coming right out of the gate, he probably had a lot of time to think about what's the first thing he's going to say. So I'm going to go with the assumption that it's pretty important. To usher... Sorry, can we go to that slide? So Jesus said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything that he was about to do really hinged on this. And as I look at creating me a clean heart, I see this message coming through. And Jesus said it better. But not only 
am I sorry, but I want to do a 180, and I want life to be different from now on. There's a line, I'll go back to the first slide now. Well, there's a line that I kept going over and over in my head all week, and uh, Tom and I were exchanging this line, but it's, it's to usher in the kingdom is a daily deliberate act. It takes intentionality. It takes, I want to repent, and I want to usher in the kingdom of heaven where I'm at. I was reminded of this in the oddest way possible, and it has to do with this t-shirt. I normally don't preach in t-shirts, um, but today I did. It's pretty comfy. It's summertime. I thought I could get away with it. Um, but at the same time, it's a shirt that I wore to a Baltimore Orioles game recently. And um, I went to an Orioles game, and I thought, okay, what orange and black thing do I have? I open up the closet, and I have nothing orange and black. No Orioles, no Harley Davidson. I, I, I like, don't have anything orange and black. So I grabbed this shirt, didn't think anything more of it. I thought it was pretty, like, cool, and it was a hot night, so I thought it would work out. So we're at the game, and three different times, three different occasions, I had people talk to me about my shirt. And I was, I I couldn't believe it. I'm like, God, what are you doing here? Okay? So the first time, uh, a young, say, 16-year-old African-American guy came right up to me, and he was like, I like your shirt. Like, what's it mean? And so we talked. We talked about uh, my friends in Mannheim that make shirts like this. It's based out of the Bible. This is what the message is. Um, this is what Bible verse it would come from. And we just talked back and forth about it. And he was like, wow. And I'm like, you got to check them out. Like, you know, you can go online, check them out. They've got a, a great place, great T-shirts. And uh, it was pretty neat. And then the second person was actually a security guard, a young female security guard. I was like, hey, I like that shirt. I was like, all right. This is getting weird. The third person. Okay, this is really odd. So it's at the end of the game, and the Orioles are losing. Um, It happens. So uh, I get a tap on my shoulder in the stands. Now, if this was an Eagles game, I would have ducked. All right? But, But it's an Orioles game. I thought it was safe to turn around and engage the person, whoever was tapping me. So uh, maybe mid-20s, female. She, She looked down, and she's like, my friends and I are talking. We got to know, like, what's up with the shirt. We, like, tell us about it. And so I had the same conversation with her that I had with the, uh, the 16-year-old at the beginning of the night. And I walked away thinking, was I a jerk to any of these people? <laughs> because, because I felt really bad about not representing Jesus if, if I was a jerk in any way. I'm thinking, what did I say during, like, the whole ball game that this person's sitting behind me? Um, so I quickly, like, went there, you know. Was I a representative of Jesus to these people? But then I was just reminded, you know, to usher in the kingdom of heaven is a daily calling for each one of us. And in that evening, my shirt reminded me of that. And maybe in the morning when we do uh, devotions or just l- quickly get a verse for the day, that's the reminder that our day is to repent and to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Now, now, there's, a, there's something about that should, that should stop us in our tracks. Because if we are able to be an agent of heaven, a representative of Christianity, of Christ, then is the opposite true? Is the opposite true at a ball game, at work? Can I be an agent of hell? So if I am able to be an agent of heaven, can I also be an agent of hell? Can I be that dragon that people are tiptoeing around? 
people are like, I'm not messing with that person because you'll just have a target on your back. Or I bring strife into every situation. If it's true that I can be an agent of heaven, is the opposite true as well? Now, as I looked at Psalm 51, again, uh, creating me a clean heart is like the line that a lot of us know from this. And it sort of sits right in the middle. And so I kept looking at it as like the center of a seesaw. This created me a clean heart. Now, seesaw, for some of y'all don't know, it's this ancient tool that kids played with that you were lucky if you like left the playground not hurt. Okay, that's a seesaw. All right. And so I just kept imagining the beginning of the chapter is down, down in the dumps. And it's ugly, and it's about the sin that David invited into his life, ushered in, when he was an agent of hell. And then created me a clean heart. It's like kind of going up, up, up toward heaven to the point where the, the joy has been restored, that his mouth would declare the Lord, and that he would even teach others about what he's been through. So down all the sin, created me a clean heart, up toward the point where he actually becomes an agent of heaven and hands that to us generations later. I want to talk about the, the, the cleanse part of this. The, the, we get this point where sins are forgiven and he cries out, Lord, cleanse me. Make me new. There's three things that David mentions and they're easy to skip over and it's hard to understand them. So this is like the Bible teacher in me real quick. Um, there, there's a word hyssop in here. And it had to do with a, a branch or a flower at that time that was used in the ritual for purification. It meant that your skin was clean. Okay, if you had, had been to a funeral or touched a dead person or something like that or, or were going to go to the temple, you washed in this ceremony, but then they would touch you with hyssop and then your skin was clean. I think it's interesting that David points out the skin and then next goes to the bones. He says, my bones are broken. And at that time, uh, what they were thinking, they, they felt the skeleton was the strength of the man. And in many ways it is. But, but what he's saying is, is my strength was crushed. And the bo- my bones were crushed. So we go from skin now to bones. And then the next thing he mentions is heart. And the Old Testament understanding of heart is, has a lot to do with your will, where your decisions come from, where your reactions come from, your center, what drives you, your heart. It can be really understood as a mix of mind and heart in the New Testament. Skin clean, bones crushed, heart renewed. Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A filter that I think that we could apply to our life, uh, very similar to the message of Psalm 51, is this. Am I purifying my character or busy multiplying my wants? Am I purifying my character or busy multiplying my wants? As I look to my life, how I spend my time, is it about character building or is it multiplying my wants? How I spend my money, how I eat, how I exercise, how I approach hobbies, purifying my character, busy multiplying my wants. How I approach my marriage, how I approach parenting, how I I approach church, purifying my character or multiplying my wants. 
Jesus says this really unique thing. It's so ironic. Uh, what, what Jesus points out is, is bad people do bad things in the secret. Okay, lie, cheat, steal, it's all secret. Jesus reverses that whole thing. He instructs us to be generous, give to the poor, pray fast, all in secret. So Jesus, instead of plotting evil in secret, we are to plot goodness in secret. A lot of whether you're building character or multiplying your wants happens in secret. So I want to I take that filter and apply it to David's situation. It would have been great character to be out with his generals the way he had been, but instead he was back just hanging out in his palace, multiplying his wants as he walked around on the rooftop. It would have been great character for him to listen to Scripture. In Deuteronomy it says, A king must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will be turned away. He did not listen. His wants multiplied. He saw a beautiful woman bathing from the rooftop. His wants multiplied. Once he had found out her identity, she was married, and he had sent her husband off to war. Clearly, this is a great time for his character to step forward and his wants multiplied. It would have been great character for him to flee temptation. The Bible says, flee temptation. Instead, he let his wants multiply again. Keep in mind, temptation is a balloon. You take the air out, and it's fleeing temptation. You take all the power and the strength out of that balloon if you flee. I still haven't come upon a situation where fleeing temptation doesn't work. C.S. Lewis had a lot to say about temptation, and maybe one of my favorite authors to read. But this one line I I want to leave with you. A man who gives into temptation after just five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. On that day on the roof when he stayed back and just walked around, he was that five-minute guy. He would never know what it was like to be an honorable husband, an honorable father, an honorable king because he was the five-minute guy. That five-minute guy won that day. The thing about the five-minute guy is that He allowed the once to multiply, and they multiplied quickly. The once whispered promises of happiness, and the promises became empty, or at least very, very short-lived every time. He had been found out, because next, he gets a text. It says messenger in the Bible, but it was probably text. Okay, with child. All of a sudden, the game changes. Okay, up to this point, he had his time in the fun, and everything was good. She's back at her house. Sin is sealed up, taken care of. That that text changes everything. So this is a great time for his character to step up, right? I mean, I've been with young guys when they find out that the relationship with they're in now has just produced a child. I've been with them when they have to figure out what kind of character they have and what are they going to do next. It's not a real fun moment. It is a hard moment. And for King David, he had the power and the money and the position to not face the music. 
And he didn't have to do the right thing, and he didn't do the right thing. Jesus would later say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. David missed out. Instead of speaking life, he invited even more death. Because just like Tom said, the wages of sin is death. David and those around him were beginning to taste and see the stench of sin. People started knowing what was up. But did you know what the serpent says in chapter 3 of Genesis? It says, you will surely not die. You will surely not taste the consequence of sin. God says the exact opposite. So David, he comes up with this plan. He calls her husband off the battlefield. Let me multiply his wants. I'm going to give him a warm meal, a soft bed, and the comfort of his wife. And when she announces that she's pregnant a couple months later, everyone will understand. The only problem is, is the man that he calls off the battlefield has a pure and noble character. He has everything that David doesn't have in this moment. Isn't it so ironic that the character of the man gets in the way of David's evil plot. And up to that point, David had a good noble character in many, many situations. So so the man sleeps outside with the king's guard because his men aren't able to go home to their wives. So David's puzzled at his noble character, and he does what any smart person would do. He mixes alcohol with the situation because alcohol always fixes everything. That was sarcastic. And it does not fix the situation. He does not go home to his wife. The man goes back to the battlefield. And now it's time for David to finally have noble character. But he doesn't. He lets the once multiply. For the wages of sin is death. And sin was hungrier than ever. And you got to be able to see that in Psalms 51 to really understand the good news that we get to at the end. Son was, the sin was so hungry, it needed a sacrifice. It needed someone to die. And David was like, uh-uh, not me, but the husband. And so the husband dies to feed the sin. David thought he had defeated sin, right? He had an answer for the sin in his life. He had brought peace, right? Sin always has the last word. It's not pretty, is it? We can put up the slide on the heart. The heart, in its deceitfulness and its unsearchableness, increases the impact and power of indwelling sin upon us. And he was letting sin take over. Here's what we cry out for this morning so that we are not that guy. Psalms 139. Examine me and probe my thoughts. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is an idolatrous tendency in me. Point it out and lead me in the reliable ancient path. David knew what the reliable ancient path was, but he was not following it. I asked Pastor Brian for some thoughts as I prepared for today, and he simply said this. He said, you know, I talk to a lot of folks that carry great deals of guilt and shame from the past. Some things they've done, some things they've done to them. How do they move forward today out of Psalms 51? I believe Psalm 51 shows us that we can show up and have the courage to be seen. And that's where it starts. 
I want to I just divide guilt and shame for a moment. Hopefully this helps you out because it can be so heavy and it can get in the way of you and God and you in relationships. So, so please hear me when I say this. Guilt is feeling really bad about a behavior, motivating you to crush the behavior, while shame is feeling really bad about yourself, motivating you to crush yourself. Both are super heavy, but they need to be divided and identified. Psalms 51, it's this personal lament with God, calling sin out in my life. God, restore me, and and I promise, and with your promise, God, we're going to move in a new direction. There's a new day. You're going to do something new in my life, creating me a clean heart, oh God. We're going to end with a prayer that that we're all going to say together. This is called the Jesus Prayer. Um, dates back to 400 A.D. And um, it actually has the words, have mercy in it, which it's interesting. David used that as the first line of Psalms 51. But, but I want to just unpack the, the image around have mercy. Because it's easy just to say have mercy, but there's an image that I want you to get. It has to do with the, the dove with that, that leaf in the dove's mouth. And that's an olive tree branch. And that's what the word mercy connects to in the Old Testament. After the flood, Noah sends the bird, one after another, to find out if there's any dry land. In one of them, a dove, which obviously represents the Spirit of God, brings back a small twig of olive. This twig conveys to Noah that the wrath is over. That God's wrath that, that, that everyone deserves has ceased and that there's a new day, and that God's offering man a fresh opportunity. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. All that are in the ark will be able to settle again on firm ground with a new attempt to live under God. In the New Testament, the parable of the Good Samaritan also uses the same olive branch in the olive oil that's poured out to soothe and to heal. So this morning, as we read this, God's wrath has ceased when you ask for God's forgiveness. God provides a new day and solid ground. And God wants to show up and soothe and heal us and our land. Let us stand together. I'm going to invite us to say these words three times over as Tom leads us in closing. Say this with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.